0: When Gloria Estefan was on the Wide Awake Club, no really, so early on in her career that they had to show a really badly transferred version of the original video for Bad Boy with some nerds messing about on the beach rather than Gloria Estefan dancing with some cats. I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer Anna Cahill. Anna, what are you up to where can we find
1: it? I'm up to a few things writing related. I've got my first book coming out soon, which is really exciting, which is a Biography of Diana Dawes, and that's out uh, for pre-order at the end of April and published in July. But I'm also writing a small book about the films of Bill Forsyth as well, which is quite exciting and doing a podcast about that too. The book about Bill Forsyth is an illustrated book about his films and my feelings about them, and that's available on my website dedicated to the project which is 10,000 Grains of Sand
0: OK, well, I can't really get a good link from Bill Forsyth or Diana Doors into your first choice, but I can go back to my intro and say this was something that around the same time was on at a similar time of the morning. I don't know if I've got as fond memories of this cartoon as I do of of Estefan and the Wide Awake Club, but you might think you don't remember it. When you hear this theme song, you probably will. <laughs> you're a hero from
1: another planet. You hope you fight for good sportsmanship.
0: theme music from Sport Billy I'll come back to why it's in such poor quality in a minute but Anna who was Sport Billy
1: Sport Billy was a cartoon character a cartoon boy from another planet I assume he was on Saturday mornings that was kind of my assumption and he basically wanted to save our planet through the beauty of sports.
0: it was made by Filmation I think it was originally from 1980 but I think it may be made internationally in another language and then it was yeah. dubbed and shown over here in 1982 and although Filmation normally did things like Space Sentinels and He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. This is one of their well-meaning, serious cartoons with a message. The message is about good sport. Apparently, Sport Billy was some kind of FIFA mascot for fair play in international football, which obviously rubbed off on Diego Maradona. But I remember it just being a bit worthy and a bit too preachy and not really liking it.
1: Oh, absolutely. It was very preachy, really all about the message. I think it was German originally. It was certainly European and felt very European. It felt very international one of those things that works in any language you know kind of that thing about the message about togetherness and kind of how you know working together and teams and kind of you know all that kind of thing works the best thing about Sport Billy was his bag. This is the key thing for me he could find anything he wanted in there to try and save the planet from the evil I've forgotten her name now Queen something or other who kind of was going to ban sports I think she wanted to kind of get rid of sports one by one so basically in each episode Sport Billy and his mates would try and stop her ruining sport for them and you and whatever is in his bag to save the world
0: yeah apparently i have no recollection of this the bag was called the Omnisac, and i am hazy about it extent i don't remember was the bag small and got bigger or did the things he took out of it start small and get bigger i can't remember which it was
1: i think his bag was normal size it's like one of those early 80s sports bags you know that are really retro and cool said now sport on them rather than yeah. any individual sport <laughs> yeah <laughs> It was one of those I actually you'd probably quite like to be seen around town with now. And yeah, he'd get whatever he needed out of that bag. So it's like a TARDIS bag, you know, it's kind of like it, it fitted everything. And him his two mates, I think he had, I think there was a girl and there was a dog who kind of accompanied him from his planet. I can't remember whether they were from his planet too or whether they were from over here and just kind of helped him out. But yeah, he'd just get stuff out of the bag. Queen Vanda, that's it. Queen Vanda was the baddie. Well,
0: let's be honest, all he ever wanted was sports equipment because that seemed to be all he pulled out of it. <laughs> to be fair, that was the entire tone of the cartoon. But there was a trend particularly in the early 80s, towards that kind of well-meaning, preachy cartoon, of which this is a really, really prominent example. And I don't remember. I certainly was never that keen on cartoons that took that kind of tone. I don't remember them being that popular, but I think people just watched them because there was nothing else on. And that's why it's really weird that for something that's still referenced now, I mean, somebody mentioned, quote, a sport Billy Bag to me the other day. (laughs) There's very little of it out there. Which is why the theme tune was in such terrible quality at the start.
1: Yeah, I think it's you had to kind of be there in the moment. I don't know how many times it was shown on TV or anything like that, but I remember watching it with my brothers. I've got two older brothers. And ever since, we reference the show so much. So if one of us comes into the room with a big bag, the other one will say, oh, who do you think you are, Sport Billy? It's just become this cultural reference within our family of the three of us. We, We obviously used to watch it together on a Saturday morning or whatever. And nobody else knows what we're on about when we say, oh, I've got a bag like Sport Billy. But yet, like you say, some people really, 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 remember the show and kind of that concept of the bag but i don't think it was repeated several times was it
0: i think it was only shown the once, to be honest with you yeah which makes it even because it was itv wasn't it it's that much harder because of all the regions to find out what was and wasn't shown and when but i'm fairly convinced it was only on the once, possibly because it didn't really take off because <laughs> the kind of kids who didn't like sport wouldn't have taken to it because it featured sport the ones who liked sport were probably out playing sport while it was on and everyone else just found it a bit too patronising, really.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that patronising tone of it. It's a bit grating, isn't it? A bit jarring, especially if you're a kid. You know, you're like, oh, God, you yeah, know, leave us alone, mate. And you're right. It's not like he was, he played football or something, wasn't he? He was like a, a footballer, but it was about every sport. And kind of, it's like, well, if you're really into football, you'd be watching a cartoon properly about football. Yeah, I don't know. It just obviously didn't work as a concept. And then the kind of the thing of togetherness was too twee. But yeah, it just kind of stayed in my head for, for years.
0: The big question is were you actually interested
1: in sport? Or not. Does snooker count as a sport? It <laughs> does for me. In that case, yes, I'm really into sport. My middle brother was really into football, still is. My oldest brother is even less sporty than me. He had no interest in sport whatsoever. I'm maybe somewhere in the middle of them. You know, I do like watching sport, but, you know, I'm not sporty myself. Let's put it that way.
0: OK, well, moving on to your second choice now, which does involve games, which for any international listeners was what we used to call, well, I'm getting confused now, PE or PT or whatever you call it, exercise in school but a different kind of games and they were probably too silly ho-ho for sport billy to bother with Silly Games from 1990, Lindy Layton, formerly of Beats International, lead vocalist on Dub Be Good To Me, who attempted. The solo career that didn't really take off so Anna
1: why do you remember this so vividly I really liked Beats International I really loved Don't Be Good To Me like everybody else did I bought their album I think I bought their second album I think they had a second album I'm sure I bought it It might have been the only one I just really liked their stuff and I thought you know I really liked Lindy Layton. she seemed really cool on top of the pop she looked like the kind of girl you'd want to be mates with I liked Silly Games when it came out but got really into her solo career I think it was just me and her mum who bought her <laughs> records just really really liked her style of music at the time I don't know it's quite hard to describe what it was like Was like a massive fan for some reason. Well, their
0: first solo album, Pressure, was basically like an additional Beats International album, because I think it was mostly produced by Norman Cook. And it is worth saying she did actually have, that version of Silly Games was a substantial hit. Mm, and it's yeah. interesting now that right at the moment on BBC4, the top of the Pops repeats, up to when Silly Games was in the charts. And there's a lot of people, their first reaction is, oh no, another cover with a dance beat behind it. Thank you 1990, hashtag TOTP. But at the time, it was quite well worris- received and i actually prefer it to the original i know a lot of people are switching off when they hear that but i think it's got a bit more a bit more punch
1: to it yeah uh, definitely obviously i listened um at the time when silly games came out so i bought the single i did listen to the janet Kay version as well and yeah i really liked lindy lane's version i think she had a great voice and yeah you're right I i liked what they did with it and i think it was a great single i
0: think the was that her sound was very much that kind of tip over between the 80s into 1990 where kind of it's of a piece with things like Guru Josh and Adamski Technotronic people like that it's that Mm -hmm. sound and things moved on so quickly that by 1991 when all the follow-on singles came out like I think there was Echo My Heart and Wait For Love that it sounded a bit old hat even then and I think that's probably why she just almost disappeared from view overnight even though these records kept coming out
1: I know I looked her up on Wikipedia just to see what she was up to now and the entry describes each other single from the Pressure album as decreasing in popularity with each release which I think is a very polite way of (laughs) of saying they didn't chart so Echo My Heart I love that song and I listened to it the other day again I made my daughter listen to it as well and I still really love it and I remember when it came out I bought it on the first day and I remember listening to the charts on the Sunday night and waiting for it to come on see what what number it was going to go in at I kept listening and listening and listening waiting and waiting <laughs> and I was getting really excited because I thought oh it hasn't been on yet oh my goodness has it gone straight at number one got to number one wasn't there and I was <laughs> Devastated because that meant they that hadn't charted in the top forty. And I was like, I felt personally attacked by the by the British public for, for not appreciating that that record, because I I really liked it. And she did keep
0: going as well, because there were mm. a couple of singles with PWL in nineteen ninety-two-93. There was I'll be a freak for you, which I remember being all over the radio, a couple of others that nobody I know has ever heard. And apparently she did the album in Japan in nineteen ninety-six, <laughs> because anyone whose career goes down that trajectory always has a fan base in Japan it's bizarre um, and yeah, then yeah. she went into DJing with Hard Knocks I think obviously through knowing Norman Cook I think that was the route there carved out a really successful career in sort of Big Beat and so on but in my head it's always weird to reconcile you know this big crowd pulling DJ with I was aware of who Lindsay Layton was before Beat International appeared because she'd been on Press Gang <laughs> and yeah. she was in that hind Spaghetti advert with the two That's sisters right. oh, competitively yeah. eating spaghetti and then one's boyfriend <laughs> turns up yeah yeah. And it's quite yeah. a leap to go from, you know, that child acting pool into the cutting edge of dance music. It
1: is, yeah. She's obviously a child star, like a Sylvia Young theatre school or, th- or something, I think. And, yeah, was it? Pack it in or I'm telling mum was it was the, yes! the, the line from the <laughs> advert. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember that. And I'm a massive Press Gang fan, you know, always have been. It's my favourite show ever. I think maybe that's part of it as well, is because she was in Press Gang, she was in a couple of episodes, you know, she had a speaking part in series two. Yeah, she was great in that. Yeah, she's a good actor and you know, she was kind of like maybe the association with Press Gang for me swung it in terms of why I was so kind of into her and, and her music as well because it's like you know she's not part of the Press Gang club therefore I'm going to be supportive maybe that's part of it too then
0: possibly yeah I mean like you say people are always surprised when you point out she was in Press Gang but she did half lines she had speaking she parts did. she did she was one of the others in it but she did have a role in episodes
1: she did she got to snog Dexter Fletcher as well in front oh, of oh yes yeah she was in a couple of episodes
0: but I wonder if looking back as well my memories a beaten to snap- art. You know, you hear be Good to Me Now, you can appreciate it as a good record, as a good single. They weren't seen as that hip or trendy at the time. Ironically given how big Norman Cook was in dance music subsequently, mm-hmm. but I think they were viewed. There were all kinds of other things going on around So There were the larger than life characters like ski. there were, let's just say the lead singers cast a bit of a shadow on their reputation, but the Stone Roses, certainly, and Happy Mondays as well, seem to be pushing mm-hmm. things in a very different direction. They When I say they were the Beatles and the Stones at the time I don't mean they had the same cultural impact but you know they represented that same kind of push and pull in the music scene Beatles National felt a bit like it was like it was dance music made for your younger siblings I think it was generally seen as a bit like that and I think they never quite shook that off
1: no a bit safe a bit smash it's it was a bit kind of yes, like you know yeah. very smash it's friendly everyone looked very nice and clean and tidy on the cover of smash it's or whatever and they were all like very engaging people when they were interviewed on the tv and all that kind of thing but yeah you're right Weren't, weren't risky, were they? They were kind of quite a safe option, maybe.
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned getting the album because I only knew one other person—the first Beats International album. I didn't even know there was a the second one, but it was somebody I briefly went out with when I was in sixth form who played it to me once. And this is going to sound so hilarious. Now we had a bit of a set to about the fact that I was distinctly unimpressed. That there's a song on there that samples the "Here Is a Box of Musical Box" from Campbell Green in a kind of ho ho ironic way, which I was a bit touched about in those days like I didn't like the half man half biscuit version that time flies by when they drive a train things you know anything that seemed to be a bit sneery funny we had a bit of an argument about that <laughs> which seems comical now but recently I mentioned that during the top of the pops live tweeting and one of my friends who is still in touch with her got in touch with her <coughs> and said "Yo, know, he, he's mentioned you and what do you remember about him and the quote that came back was funny interesting but always thought he was more interested in laughing about with his mates and that fucking 60s music music saw him being funny on tv a few years ago <laughs> that's both nice and a bit damning really Oh God. Did the album ever lead you to any situations like that then?
1: No, my friends just thought I was a little bit, you know, they kind of humoured me, I think, with my musical taste because, yeah, some of it they kind of agreed with, some of it they were a bit, yeah, okay, whatever, you know, just go over there and kind of you know, be into music. <laughs> There's a photo of me, I think I shared it on Twitter once, which was taken of me in my friend Becky's bedroom. I used to go around to Becky's on a Sunday, sometimes on a Sunday afternoon when we were about 13, 14, maybe 15. She had quite a nice house, and mum and dad had Sky so we were allowed to watch The Symptoms she was the only person who had Sky at the time but yeah so I'd go around to her, so We'd listen to the charts sometimes I'd be like really excited about a particular record and whatever and you should be you know not that bothered there's a photo of me holding a Nana Cherry 12 inch single looking really happy with myself because I bought it I think in Leeds that day or the day before and I brought it round to play on a record player and I'm looking so 1990 91 it's unbelievable you know with the kind of the tracky top and the kind of the, um, the big fringe thing, you know, my hair pushed forward and all that kind of thing. It is a beautiful, beautiful social document, I think, of the time. But yeah, my friends were quite supportive of me kind of being really into my records and there was a record shop in Leeds in the Corn Exchange I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit geeky now, where you could buy 12-inch singles and kind of more unusual stuff. The Corn Exchange in Leeds was really trendy at the time, like quite a cool place to hang out and I used to love kind of going and and looking at records in there with my friends being really impatient, waiting for me outside. I think they humoured me with my musical taste because I was kind of into dancing stuff, you know, more alternative stuff, which they weren't, but not too much that I kinda of swayed into kind of stuff they couldn't relate to. So I think they thought it was quite sweet really with it.
0: Okay, well you can actually get the music from your next choice now apparently, but I'm not sure you'll be in that much of a hurry to get hold of it. Right, Joey.
1: Hello. Yeah. Ow yeah. My mammy shouldn't oh pog that I'm not going do
0: Okay, I've no idea what's actually being said in there, because I don't speak Welsh, but that was a clip from Johnny Jones, a BBC, or was it drama from, was it 1982 or 1986? I'm going to come back to all that in a minute, because I'm not sure. Anna, tell me what you remember about it.
1: So my memories of Johnny Jones are vague. I just remember sitting and watching it with my brother. I think it was S4C. I think it was Channel 4, and it was the Welsh language channel, and I think Channel 4 used to just show it. I don't know i watching day or whatever but i remember sitting there with my brother and i think it was a weekday kind of after school time it was a welsh language show for children like a little drama show a little drama series set in world war ii in north wales that's right didn't he move to london Yeah, randomly Yeah, it was kind of like his adventure Like him and his adventures around, you know, in his life And I think it kind of spanned quite a lot of time I can't remember him ever looking different But maybe he did, maybe he grew up a bit on the screen I don't know But yeah, it was like what happened to him, you know Kind of as he was growing up in this little village And then going to London I guess something to do with the war, maybe It felt like a social realist, Johnny Briggs You know, it was kind of like the adventures of a young lad Getting into scrapes and, you know, learning from the experiences And each episode was like a really small thing would happen You know, like like Johnny Briggs bringing home the rabbits from school that's the extent of the drama it was the same for Johnny Jones it was like something really minor would happen and that was the extent of the episode it would be all about him and how he's going to explain himself or you know the thing he'd gone through and how he's going to explain it to his parents but in Welsh
0: well the S4C thing is kind of answering a mystery in my head because the only concrete evidence I was able to find apart from you know a couple of places say it was made in 1982 it's not in the hill and beyond the book basically listing all. All children's TV dramas. Mm. Like I say, the only dates I could find were for BBC Two in 1986, during which it was discussed on Take Two with Philip Schofield. <laughs> which I remember happening, but I was convinced I'd seen it earlier than that because I remember people talking about it when I was in primary school, which I wasn't by 1986, and, you know, saying, but oh, that stupid programme where they're just talking Welsh all the time, it's really boring. And the other thing I remember is, in one of the bits where he goes to London, because he's, I assume he didn't speak any English, some boys say piss pot at him and laugh, <laughs> which I remember I remember being young enough to find that a bit shocking, but not in an, I'm an outraged way, a bit kind of embarrassing. For everyone involved, they try to do that a lot with children's TV around them for reasons I've not quite figured out. You know, throwing in some mock bad language or some description. I don't know why, but I must have seen it somehow on S4C because we did sometimes just randomly seem to get HTV and S4C for some reason instead of the actual Granada and Channel 4 services. I no, would sometimes cool. see odd things in Welsh and not quite understand what they were
1: date wise i'm not sure either because in 82 i would have been really young and we would have only just moved to leeds then from we lived in bristol before then it's like a real small window 82 is kind of the time that we moved from liverpool to bristol and then we moved from bristol to leeds and it's kind of like it feels like we were in leeds maybe they repeated it maybe they kind of like put on again i don't know it's really strange but i was quite young and i do remember thinking oh this is really funny because my nan and grandad moved to north wales to a little village and north wales around that time and me and my brother were kind of thinking well when we go is it going to be like johnny jones we (laughs) used to kind of like think it was going to be like not like it was the war you know what i mean and that we kind of had this concept of a north wales village being exactly like it was on johnny jones so it must have been relevant enough in our minds when they moved there and they moved there in 82 or 83 so i don't know i think you know how things in your mind you, you can't quite pin it down in terms of time but yeah maybe we did watch it when it was first on and then when we went to see our and granddad's house near Mould in a little village called Brinny It wasn't quite like Johnny Jones.
0: They were obsessed as well around that time with children's shows set during the war as well. Yeah. And yeah. The, the, again, that's really odd because it's not, the things that I remember really, really clearly, the things that you could in some way relate to, I mean, some of them were costume dramas like the Box of Delights, you could relate to in a different way because Kay was kind of an outsider and obviously more interested in magic than, mm-hmm. you know, whatever was going on the world around him but it was more contemporary things that struck a chord with me and I did used to wonder who are these children that are that interested in evacuees and so yeah, on it all I'm, felt like yeah. a blue Peter feature had got out of control <laughs> Yeah, sentient yeah. and developed a storyline.
1: Wasn't Carrie's War on around that time it as well? It was. It
0: was repeated around then.
1: Yeah. 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 I loved that show, but it scared me as well. This is the thing. It's quite scary. You know, the concept. I think for us as kids in the eighties or whatever of that happening, maybe there was kind of irrelevance because of you know all the things that were going on in the world. That kind of threat of nuclear war and things like that was still around. That concept of being under attack and being living through a war was really kind of quite. We could kind of. It's really scary that feeling. I don't. I don't know whether it's the same for kids these days I doesn't it even enters their minds you know that kind of feeling maybe it was we weren't that long after the war were we I suppose
0: well I think it's interesting that I wonder if the bottom's fallen out of the market for all that apocalyptic drama now in any sense whether it's historical or modern because we're living through strange times and the one thing I've noticed recently is I used to see literally every fourth or fifth tweet somebody mentioning threads in relation to anything <laughs> that happened in the news you know if Boris Johnson's hair was standing up slightly it'll be OMG threads with the picture of the opening caption. Doesn't seem to be happening now. No,
1: I think we've got other, other things to think about now.
0: Do you remember any other Welsh language programmes though? Because we used to see some sometimes, like I say, and the one that, I've been dreading somebody choosing this for looks and familiar, thankfully nobody ever has. Do you remember will quack quack? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't, sorry. It was a very barely animated story about a duck in a sailor suit who would do something, when I say he would do something naughty, it was naughty in Beano parlance. He'd not over a jar of flour or something and it end up with being sent to bed and you see him in bed and you go quack very sadly (laughs) and that was the end of it
1: no that sounds great
0: no it doesn't sound great i'm warning you now don't go near it okay well we're moving elsewhere in the british isles for your next choice which is very very regionally set but this time they actually remember to speak in english which is why you might want to follow this clip
1: i look stupid when i smile it's okay
0: you don't have to smile if you don't want to
1: should i look at the camera doesn't really matter I blinked again, didn't I? Just relax. God, I hate having my photograph taken. I think, instead of passport photographs, they should let you do a drawing of yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Is this all you do? Oh, no. We do uh, weddings, anniversaries, funerals, models, children, pets. What kind of photographs do you do? Different things. Just whatever catches my eye, really. I'm trying to get a portfolio of my own work together. Try and go freelance. Be more independent. Do my own photographs. Are you ready? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Are you sure? Yes.
1: Do you want to smile?
0: Hey, that's a bit of dialogue from the girl in the picture not the 1957 film like you're probably thinking but one from 1985 which I've forgotten all about until you mentioned it Anna what went on here
1: oh do you know what I love this film so much this is the girl in the picture which is a I say, 1985 film set in Scotland and it stars John Gordon Sinclair obviously best known as Gregory from Gregory's Girl I would describe it as a romantic a very gentle romantic comedy set in Glasgow and I loved it at the time I think I saw it one night it was on TV and I taped it because I thought it looked like the kind of thing I might be into and yeah I had it on VHS taped off the telly for years and used to watch it a lot but then obviously haven't seen it for years as a result of not having a, anything to play a VHS on couldn't find it on DVD couldn't find it on anything it just kind of like but stayed in my mind I absolutely love this film it's so sweet and gentle and uh, subtle charming not much happens my kind of film basically and John Gordon Sinclair stars as a young I guess mid-80s aspirational type in Glasgow you know he's got a quite a nice tweed jacket and you know he's got a job in a as a photographer you know he's kind of a little bit you know on, on the up kind of thing. he's got a nice flat in the middle of town a nice life but he wants something more he doesn't know what he wants you know that kind of thing lovely little film absolutely delightful how
0: old were you when you first saw it
1: so i think i saw it on tv uh, maybe a few years after it came out so i'd say i saw it towards the late 80s so i would have been nearing my teens and starting to get into films it might not have been the first time it had been shown and it might have, you know, been on before. I remember it being on quite relatively late, you know. But I was starting to kind of be into films and, into, and obviously thinking about boys and, you know, romance as well because I did really quite fancy John Gordon Sinclair in this film and he seemed the kind of guy I'd quite like to maybe go out with. Like I say, you know, he had a, a nice flat and a job and, and seemed quite sweet and funny. It was a very romantic film and I was starting to get that kind of romantic mindset. So I was probably towards my early teens, maybe.
0: Well, that is interesting because there is a kind of thing about at that age, everyone seems to have a film that they latch on that kind of speaks to them, despite not being maybe that well-known or, you know, not as successful as, say, I don't know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom <laughs> or something. But you only have to look at things like, well, I mean, you've mentioned Gregory's Girl already, which fulfills that role for a lot of people. There's that Jeremy from the early 70s that a lot of people like Mark Kermode were quite very entranced by.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm a, I'm a big Bill Forsyth fan. So Gregory's Girl, I, I loved when I saw that. I was 11 when I saw Gregory's Girl. I'm massively into Bill Forsyth as a filmmaker, as people who follow me on Twitter probably know, and devoting an entire podcast to him and, and, and a book. So his films are very whimsical, quirky, maybe smaller scale stories, but beautifully told. And this film, The the Picture, is very similar to that. I think some people might see it and see the premise of it and think, oh, maybe is that a Bill Forsyth film? There are similarities, but it's not a Bill Forsyth film. It just happens to be a Scottish romantic comedy starring John Gordon Sinclair. It's actually written and directed by an American, Carrie parker who i can't see any reference to anything else that they ever made it's kind of sweet little film and i can completely understand why no one else has ever seen it but it's lovely there's some lovely touches in it it's really lovely little side stories lovely little characters just really sweet it was actually on tv recently so after i'd sent you my choices it was on i was on talking pictures which is one of my favorite channels anyway because you know obviously i'm really into old films and they showed the girl in the picture one night and i was just it was amazing I was just so happy to be able to see it again it was wonderful and it was just how i remembered it as well if you
0: look at the cast list it's quite interesting that it's not only got gregor fisher it's got ricky Fulton as well it's almost like somebody is deliberately tongue-in-cheek playing up to the scottish bbc comedy (laughs) stereotype let's get both of them in i did notice it's also got a very young simone labib who obviously has been in a number of things but was in the young person's guide to becoming a rock star which is that big mid-90s channel 4 drama Oh completely forgotten about now yeah. she was the last one to join the band who I think she played Turntables from what I remember <laughs> which was a, is a very very mid-90s thing of you know a, a pasty white indie band having a female DJ it is a because I've watched it since you mentioned it it's a lovely film I can yeah. really see why you connected with it particularly at that age
1: absolutely and there were lines in it as well that I'd, I'd remembered for years one of the characters talks about you know, she's supposed to be having a passport photo done and she said oh instead of having your passport photo done you should draw a be able to draw a picture of yourself and that stuck with me as a, as a concept so I thought that's amazing yeah and I thought about that for ages afterwards and then there's a line towards the end no spoilers where um, John Gordon Sinclair's character is trying to get back with his girlfriend he says I don't want to be happy I want to be miserable with you which I think is <laughs> just like it's it's a lovely little film it's a lovely story and it's about 90 minutes long you know it kind of it, it, it the pace of it is great and it's just that kind of like snapshot in time of these people yeah it, it's really charming there is a- Continuing
0: thing though, of I me, mean, people tend to lump British films in all together and act as though they're all of equal worth, and usually the implication is not much worth. But what I don't understand is why there are sometimes films that they're not Citizen Kane, but they're good films in their own way that win awards. And are very well received at the time, and then just get forgotten about. I mean, there are exceptions like Local Hero, for example, but you think of Restless Natives, kind of mm. dropped off the radar. Small Faces, which I oh, love, a yeah. mid-nineties kind of teen 60s set gangster film. Whatever happened to Harold Smith, which is brilliant, and I think you can't even get that on DVD. And that's only from nineteen ninety-nine, I think. But yeah. what happened to them? Why are they a thing for a month or two, and then just vanish?
1: Yeah, it's, it's strange. That, like you said, there's a lot of these films you just. Can't get hold of a copy, and you kind of just pray they'll be shown on TV or whatever at some point. Yeah, these smaller scale films, but lovely, beautifully told stories. But yeah, you're right that maybe didn't get the attention of other British films. Did particularly going from the late nineties onwards, you kind of you got your kind of more gritty British films kind of did for a lot of the other stuff that had come before it, and people weren't able to get the funding to make these charming smaller scale stories made. You know, if you don't have a gritty kind of Brit feel to it, it just wasn't made any more, you know, so there's, there's a little kind of subset of British films which are charming and, and lovely that people forget about but, you know, they're lovely stories, well acted, well told. Yeah, there's no shooting people or you know, social realist stuff happening but they've been forgotten about and it's kind of, it's, it's lovely to when they do turn up again and remind you that, you know, there is a, a whole swathe of these films that were made and kind of slipped under the radar.
0: Okay, well I'm not sure that your next choice is of quite the same tone and quality but I'm sure you'll be telling me about that in a minute. Now nah, the might have come on it's Probably dust in the carburetor. I have to pull the whole bloody thing down and clean it.
1: Hell. It's vapour lock. What? Vapour lock. What's that, Kate? Don't worry. It's the carburetor. It's vapour locked. You've been dawdling. That's what caused it. Katie's awfully good with engines, darling. Will you leave it to me? It's all yours, my dear. I was right. Vapour-locked. We Might as well take it easy. I've got to wait for it to cool. It's a wonder you haven't opened a garage. Well, don't you worry. I could have if I'd wanted. <laughs> Come on.
0: Does she really know what she's
1: doing? trust
0: Katie darling oh I do I do okay that was a brief bit of dialogue from Return to Eden an Australian drama series from apparently 1983 I don't know what's shown over here Anna can you clarify that
1: oh do you know what in some ways I'm kind of regretting putting this on my list to be honest (laughs) because I'm really going to embarrass myself talking about this Return to Eden I saw it in the mid 80s I had to look it up because I remember thinking yeah definitely mid 80s 86 87 kind of time when I looked it up there were two versions of it there was an earlier 80s one and then they did a, they returned Return to, returned to Eden and made a series and I think it's a series that I remember I don't know when it, it seemed like it was shown in the summer I think it was about 1986 maybe
0: yeah because that was the era of I mean obviously you remember the series a bit better and they quite often did lead to series but it was the era of the big blockbusting mini series yeah. which always trailed weeks in advance things like Cain and Abel The Thorn V <laughs> on a completely different tangent was a mini series originally the american ones kind of when a couple of them flopped sort of crashed and burned in the mid 80s well i mean they still made them in america but over here they were a bit sort of shunned they weren't given the same prominence by the bbc and itv but the australian ones carried on yeah The things like the dirt water dynasty brides of christ oh yeah yeah i remember that (laughs) sorry Although Brides of Christ was more cult viewing because it was a bit naughty despite was, yeah. the religious theme of it but <laughs> it's like America kind of dropped the ball on that and Australia basically said good day mate let's have that ball and carry on with
1: it. Oh yeah absolutely yeah I mean, and Return to Eden was a classic example it was very glamorous and big budget for an Australian show and had that feel of a, a like you say US 80s kind of soapy serial you know kind of big budget drama type mini series thing it was all kind of mer- murder plots and glamorous kind of super bitch types and ridiculous kidnappings and things like that. Yeah, wasn't there
0: something about somebody pushed somebody else into a crocodile-infested swamp (laughs) which somehow (laughs) survived being mauled by crocodiles?
1: Oh, it sounds ridiculous. It was ridiculous and I think I knew it was ridiculous when I was watching it, but I was hooked. I was absolutely, for a few weeks when this was on, I was absolutely hooked. I think that's why I think it was the school summer holidays because I, I seemed to have been able to stay up to watch it. It was kind of that thing of it was very intense you know maybe it was on in a small space of time and it felt really big and massive and like you know how things when you're younger become completely part of your life and overtake everything else when you're really really into them it was like that some of my friends watched it as well we'd talk about it and kind of what happened the night before like you would a soap opera you know we shouldn't really have been watching it. it's all about love triangles and you know all, all sorts of things that we probably weren't as aware of which is probably a good thing and yeah the one particular episode there was a massive cliffhanger I, I can't remember what was involved there was a character called Stephanie. And i remember that she was this big character in the show Something could happened to stephanie i think she'd been kidnapped yeah that's it she'd been kidnapped the episode ended on this big cliffhanger and then there was a knock at the door and i went to answer it and there was a woman standing there in a like a big sunglasses and like a hair covered in a headscarf and she was with two of my friends from down the road two older girls who uh, i used to kind of try and hang out with and they had this person with them they were like anna it's stephanie we found her they had literally <laughs> and this this is why it's so embarrassing i really regret putting this forward because they tried to convince me that this was stephanie and that actually she turned up in rothwell near leeds you know kind of like um, on the on a sunday night or whatever for some random reason and that they brought her to show me you know to let me know she was okay and me being maybe about 10 i, was probably about ten, I think at the time nine or ten and i kind of believed them <laughs> Even though I knew it couldn't be real, it couldn't be true, I kind of, cause I kind of trusted them, I kind of thought, oh, Ned, well, why would they, you know, well, maybe it is. And they were like, no, come with us, come with us. So I followed them down the road to their house. We got there, and obviously they went into fits of giggles and things and kind of, you know, <laughs> revealed it was their, their friend or something. And I remember that feeling mortified because I'd kind of believed that this could be the character from Return to Eden. It's the weirdest little kind of thing in my mind of how ridiculous it sounds now. But at the time, I was like, oh, well, maybe it is, because she she looks like, you know, she had the mid-80s kind of like shoulder pads and kind of, you know, whatever. They don't really gone to town on, on this little kind of um, trick they played on me. But, oh, so, so embarrassing.
0: <laughs> well, it's not surprising you were that taken in and you were that hooked by the series, because it's an interesting thing about it. If you look at the kind of predominance of miniseries, things like Dallas and Dynasty, the Brat Pack films, Degrassi Junior High, oh, and well, so on. Yeah. I think all those things were big then because it was, it was a time of economic downturn here anyway but it was all glamour that we didn't have access to over here kind of an impossibly aspirational view of life you know that was like everyday life for the characters in these things and you know now it's interesting that you can get i don't know diamante foot spas in home parkings <laughs> you can go out and, well at the moment you can't go out and get instant latte but you know what i mean that seemed like impossibly off the radar in those days and now you don't really get those sort of things catching on What you get is reality shows of people emulating those trappings in really horrible urban environments. <laughs> yeah. And that seems to be what people are impressed by. And I think it's just interesting that we had even, probably even people who wouldn't have defined themselves as soap opera watchers probably secretly watched Dallas.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the aspirational aspect of it and the escapism as well. Yeah, you can completely understand it because it was so alien to us. Like you say, it was all kind of martinis by the poolside rather than a mellow birds in your mum's kitchen, you know. It was- <laughs> <laughs> kind of yeah it was something just completely off the scale but yeah it really hooked people I think and obviously some of the British versions of, of you know so-called glamorous miniseries and things weren't maybe I'm thinking Howard's way trying to bring kind of the glamour <laughs> yeah, it didn't and, quite work did it <laughs> you know, exactly so yeah you're bound to look to America you're bound to look to Australia as well because then Australia was like you know neighbours were yeah. really new or the concept of anything set in Australia I mean you know sunshine sun shining and it looks beautiful you know Sydney whatever. Pools. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was, it was very, not many people knew people, that, you know, you might have family over there or whatever, and it all sounded amazing, you know, so to see that on screen, I can completely understand why people were hooked.
0: Well, I can't believe I only just noticed this now, but apparently it was co-produced by Hanna-Barbera. <laughs> now, I know that we're trying to make live action things around that time, but I'm only aware of Benji axe and the Alien Prince, which, to be honest, is more the sort of glamour I aspired to, you know, being chased by a Darth Vader clone with your friendly dog and robot pals, <laughs> but... <laughs> (laughs)
1: how did they get involved with this oh goodness knows the whole concept of it really when you think it's not that glamorous really actually setting in an Australian suburb I wonder how they viewed it in Australia and whether it was as popular there
0: well there's an extensive Wikipedia page suggesting that it was and also I just noticed in the cast as well Daniel Abneri who was somebody who I think he was a comedian he tried to well in inverted commas surf the wave of the popularity of neighbours and home and away he turned up over here kind of guesting on a lot of things and never really took it it's just startling to see his name there because for a while he was a recognisable name without actually doing anything <laughs> and does anyone over here remember
1: him now no well he, yeah I, d- I doubt it very much
0: okay well i don't think it was ever a return to eden bore game i've not even looked into whether there were novels or anything i mean there probably were but some things there's so much merchandise based on them that we've actually been through a few of them on looks Familiar before now we've not actually touched on this one i don't remember playing this so i'm interested to find out what happened in it <laughs>
1: Dr. David Banner, physician, scientist, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry. And now when David Banner grows Metamorphosis
0: okay, no prizes of recognising that as part of the opening narration for The Incredible Hulk, the late 70s TV series that, let's just say, did not really inspire the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Anna, I believe you had a particular piece of merchandise based on it.
1: Yeah, so we as a family had the Incredible Hulk board game, which was actually like a, I think it's described as a smash-up action board game. It was based on the late 70s Incredible Hulk. And basically, you had to race to build a wall or like a house thing, like a shelter, before the Hulk was revved up and ready to attack and go crazy all over the board and basically crash into all your stuff and knock it down. And that was the concept of the game.
0: Yeah, it appears to have been a 3D plastic model of the Hulk in the middle of the board. Now, did it actually move or not?
1: You revved it up. I don't know who revved it up and at what stage. But honestly, I still now can recall the noise of the Hulk being revved up and panicking because I hadn't built my shelter yet. But basically, this Hulk would just go crazy all over the board after it was revved up. That's what he up. does best. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, all that, oh, that noise. Honestly, it still gives me nightmares, I think. I think it's four players, so you each had a corner where you'd build You think You had a colour, so you had, I think it was green, red, blue, and yellow, and you'd take it in turns, play, I don't know it was a dice or whatever, and how you got to do your turn and what you had to do or whether you moved around a board or something. That bit has kind of gone from my mind. All I remember is building the shelters and the Hulk then knocking them down and making me cry.
0: That is quite a common thing in the 70s. If they did do these, what were for the time, technologically high-concept board games, based on actually very threadbare gameplay, there were mostly variants on Ludo. You know, they might have involved things like building walls, but it never really got more complicated than that. But in those days, that was really exciting. That was the height of technology that a board game did something. You didn't just move the pieces around the board.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, we, we were delighted to have this board game, I think. I <laughs> obviously played with my brothers, and my, my brothers used to take delight in kind of revving the Hulk and setting it free and, you know, hoping that I'd have my thing knocked down. Apparently it was supposed to be a lab that you were building. I did look it up, actually. In order to cure Bruce Banner, we were all building a lab. But really, it looked more like a portaloo. to be honest. It was just like <laughs> a little kind of plastic structure. Yeah, I love the building. I still kind of love building things and making things, little models and things like that so yeah that played to my kind of interest you know, building something making something but to then see it just crash down I think it, you were able to put like barriers in front of it I think that was the last piece of the thing was if you got your barrier in front of it the Hulk wouldn't reach your lab and you'd be safe so of course that's probably the last piece that you put in place was like a little buffer thing like a little kind of corner piece so if you got to that stage you knew you'd probably be okay because the, the Hulk could never get to your thing and you might win but yeah getting get to that point Because the youngest of three you're more likely to not be the one that wins these things
0: well it does kind of remind you of the fact that I mean on the artwork of the box it's actually got a comic strip representation of the Hulk but it's of the time frame where it was coming off the back of the TV series they've not bothered licensing a villain from the comics for it which also indicates that we're trading off the TV show because they didn't really use comic villains in that but reminds you of how big that show was yeah. I mean, people tend to think of it now in terms of the Spider-Man and the Doctor Strange series that came with it sort of crossed over a bit and both didn't last very long, but The Hulk went on for years. It was absolutely huge. It was one of the biggest things on ITV. I would say even people, because, you know, being me, I was already reading the comics and if I'd seen this, I would have thought, oh, I wanted the Wonder Man or Captain Marvel board game. (laughs) As if I, I mean, a Captain Marvel board game might happen now, but it was not going to then. But I think even people who'd never even been near a comic knew who The Hulk was and what he did. And that, well, I know he was David Banner in the TV series, but they knew who his alter ego was.
1: It was enormous. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I found it really scary. And I think we've talked about this before, you know, the fact that any reference to superheroes or anything like that, my reference points are always the rubbish 70s TV versions of anything. (laughs) It's not the comics, it's not the films, it's it's the rubbish TV 70s stuff that I remember. And yeah, the Hulk is a prime example of that, yeah. Yeah, I found it very scary. I was quite young though, I think. And Obviously, with two older brothers, you do get exposed to these things maybe when you're a little bit too young to appreciate appreciate them. But yeah, the Hulk was massive. Everyone knew the Hulk.
0: The thing was that they could never, despite the show being massive, never quite get the Hulk right until very, very recently. Because does anyone even mention the Ang Lee film now? I'm not sure that they do. I mean, even the first proper Hulk that they did for the MCU doesn't really work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, if you think about it, you know, it's it's easy to stray into Jolly Green Giant kind of territory, isn't it, really, with the Hulk. One thing you really can get wrong visually, perhaps, if you not too careful. So were you
0: actually frightened of the game if you're frightened of the TV Hulk?
1: I was frightened of the jeopardy of the game. Um, <laughs> the Hulk himself, you know, on, in the, the kind of the plastic model thing, I guess wasn't as scary as on the TV. The riskiness of the game and that that kind of feeling of, of having to rush, having to kind of get something done in that space and time, you know, it was really quite daunting.
0: OK, well, I don't really have a good way of getting into your next choice apart from, I'm fairly sure they will have referenced the Incredible Hulk more than once. This is something I'm really glad somebody's finally picked because I've got such a fond memory of this. It's one of the few VHS tapes that I still own. Before I spend the whole rest of the show going on about it without naming it, let's hear a clip from it. And so now I find myself here desperately trying to forget in the French foreign leisure. Oh, well, still, at least it's nice and sunny. Hey? <laughs> <laughs> that was her name! What?
1: Her name was Sunny, and I used to call her Sunny. Sunny? Oh, please I'm don't th- torment me. I'm sorry. i a
0: bit unfortunate, it is very sunny. Isn't oh my My heart aches. Well, well, I'm sorry. What's your name then? Oh, Sandy. Hey? Eh? Yes. Sandy. Oh, we. Oui but sunny and sandy. Oh, please, my friend, please, can't I forget? But I, you picked the wrong place, mate. It's the sunniest, sandiest place. Oh, oh my friend, please, please, <laughs> That's enough about me, my friend. Let us talk about you. Well, I'm Sidney Lovecraft. <clears throat> oh, <God. laughs> Sydney! Sidney. Did you come here to forgets, too? Did you join the French Foreign Legion for that reason? Well, no, actually, I was looking for the British Legion. I ended up here by mistake. <laughs> the,
1: the British Legion?
0: Yeah, you know, the British Legion Social Club. They do a lovely pot roast a lunchtime, and then of <laughs> the evening, you get a bit of bingo and cabaret, you know, comedian, singer, something like that. You
1: know. Oh, and
0: now you are here for six long years, and if you should try to escape, heaven forbid, they will come after you and bury you in sand up to your neck and then chop you into little slices! Slices? Slices! slices. That's a great accent you've got there. Oh, <laughs> happy one, one yeah. you. Okay, that's Trevor and Simon with a bit of their French for Legion <laughs> sketch from Going Live. I still quote from this regularly, but it's nice to take from Going Live. Anna, where are we watching this on? Okay, so
1: I've chosen Trevor and Simon's stupid video, which was a VHS video that came out of Trevor and Simon's sketches. I think in about nineteen ninety.
0: Yes. There was also Trevor and Simon's other video in nineteen ninety one. I've got the double pack with both of them. <laughs> wow
1: yeah i absolutely love this video i first saw it so obviously i knew them from going live and everyone knew them you know and the sketches on there but this was something different this was kind of like something that only me and very few people in fact only me and my friend louisa from school ever saw she used to come around and we'd watch it and we loved it and the sketches are just fantastic i first saw it actually when my brother my older brother worked at hmv at the time in leeds they were allowed to borrow stuff overnight so we'd borrow videos i used to see films <laughs> borrowed from the hmv floor I don't know whether they were actually uh, actually actually allowed but they did he'd bring stuff home and we'd watch films or whatever music videos and things like that you know you know when you said those compilation videos of music videos but he borrowed Trevor and Simon's stupid video for me when it first came out and I absolutely loved it I got a hold of a copy it um, must have been I don't know a birthday present or something Louisa would come around and we'd watch it and then we'd recreate the sketches at school and nobody else knew what on earth we were <laughs> on about because it wasn't the going live sketches we were recreating because they were very much of the moment and on the you know they utilized the saturday morning thing they utilized the guests they had you know the video the stupid video was more it was about them and their interaction and their the wonderful way they kind of put these sketches together they were just completely etched in our brains and we used to recreate them a couple in particular of sketches including the Want to nut sketch where there's just these them two <laughs> these two crazy guys in a room and one of them would say one to know and the other one would go, Yes, please. And then they'd laugh manically. And we used to we used to recreate this scene when we were waiting to go into lessons and people just thought we were just <laughs> crazy. it's like we just found it hilarious. And that thing of like knowing something nobody else did, you know, that thing between us where we were the only ones who knew what that sketch was, I think was part of it as well. But yeah, just absolutely loved the sketches on that video. It was great, it was such fun. Well,
0: they were- absolutely perfect for going live and obviously you know for this video as well because i think really the only example of comedians working in children's TV and getting it right by not trying to be down with the kids in any way at all they were doing what they thought was funny based on their own experiences I mean one thing that is quite well represented on these videos is my favourite thing theatre workshop (laughs) (laughs) that is based on their drama teachers they've encountered they're just constantly saying stupid old Robin yes but Ray was stupider earlier wasn't he that sort of thing but they really 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 pitched that right they didn't even really that much bother with what else was going on in the show they'd make up their characters and do a funny bit and I think the really telling thing is that if you watch either video in the sketches actually taken from going live you can hear Philip Schofield having hysterics <laughs> And they actually credit him at the end of the video, don't they? Featuring the laugh of Philip Schofield? But I remember once, somebody asked him on something, what's your favourite memory of going live? Without hesitation, he said, Trevor and Simon.
1: Oh, yeah. They were just so funny. And you're right, they, they pitched it so well. You know, they kind of, there was something for everybody. But it wasn't that thing that came in later on where they were being rude and kind of the no, adults can kind of come in and enjoy the sketch kind of thing, which seems to have been, you know, around kind of after that. They were delightful. They were playful. But they were it was intelligent as well you know it trusted kids to have an intelligent brain and be able to to kind of take these sketches and and really enjoy them and the older you got the more you you enjoyed them as well because those are elements that kind of came in but it wasn't kind of playing to that it was about the interplay between them about creating those little characters the sister brothers was one of the ones i really liked with the wheeling and the dealing ducking and the diving you know the kind of the whole they took the cultural reference points as well of the time and kind of played with that people remember certain characters that they did you know singing corner i remember the Do doo base you know in the laundrette. you know there's all sorts of lovely characters and they built them over time you know. But yeah, there was just such fun in their material. The charm of them as individuals came across as well, and and their friendship, you know, came across on screen.
0: And they really had a good eye for, and looking back, I think there's a big influence on me. They knew how to take a cultural reference that, you know, people might not be familiar with, but that stood for something, was like a shorthand for something else. Because I remember Singing Corner specifically referencing, as part of a joke, Donovan's album, A Gift from a (laughs) Flower to a Garden, which, you know, how many kids watching knew what that was? And yet... (laughs) it stands for something you kind of know just from the name and the name of the album what they were referring to what they're asking you to think of they were brilliant at that i think
1: absolutely yeah i think they they obviously knew each other really well and were good friends they they met at university i think was it manchester university they might have been i don't know you could see that friendship kind of and that trust in each other to write together and kind of create these charming characters together you can really see that you can see the strength of that in in what they do but so funny just and the the lovely guys I, i remember hearing them on a podcast a few years ago kind of you know more recently and what they're doing now just really lovely guys you know kind of still really funny just naturally really funny between them but individually as well and some of the lovely things they're doing now I think is it Simon Hickson now runs a cinema project in hospitals but they always seem to be kind of just under the radar because they were doing it for kids it didn't get the appreciation it deserved but they were great you know. Was that Richard Herring's
0: Leicester Square Theatre podcast you heard them on?
1: Yes it was yeah. Because
0: little known fact the person shouting Battle Cat in the intro is me when he couldn't remember. <laughs> the name of He-Bun's cat. But that was great. They really, really loved talking about the old days. Yeah. But they didn't really mention the video. No. Yeah, that, that had some really interesting long-form sketches in it, like yeah. the Ninja Day Off, which I adored. Which is a again, it's a specific parody of specific elements of Bruce Lee films. Yeah. But not that you have to have a degree in Bruce Leeology to understand them.
1: I was going to say because at the time I wouldn't, I didn't know much about Bruce Lee, you know, as a kind of you know, thirteen-year-old schoolgirl, whatever it was.
0: It's the way they just there's bits where they just pause and leap and do sort of martial arts moves <laughs> go Wah! and then by pressing two fingers together <laughs> the number of times they do it that's what the humour in they don't yeah. repeat it too much or too little it's just perfect really and yeah. let's just get out of the way there is a very very funny sketch on there which I don't think can be shown anymore because they do a very specific parody of a light entertainment show from around that time I think they may not have liked the host very much <laughs> He was okay. portrayed as a bit criminal. Not in the way we know him for, but he's <laughs> very keen to do a runner with a big briefcase full of money. Yeah. But at the time that was the most hilarious thing on
1: it. Sorry, I'm I'm nearly crying here with laughter. Um yeah. <laughs> this is the thing they they were very they could be very cutting and very sharp but without the cruelty perhaps that the, the other acts would bring into it but still incredibly clever and that's why I love it so much still but
0: it's a shame that they didn't really do much well because there were a couple of attempts to try and cross them over because I know they were part of that show 100% on BBC 2 I think that might be in oh, yeah. the standing room only the football magazine show they yeah. also had a one-off BBC 1 pilot well all I remember about it was Letitia Dean was like the celebrity guest in it I think oh. I called know. Trevor and Simon's Summer Spectacular or something, but it just didn't, for some reason, outside the going live context, it didn't, when I say it didn't work, they were still funny, but it just didn't work for the audience.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things isn't it, you just, you, you would think it would transfer in some way, if you find the right vehicle for it, it would work, but maybe the right vehicle was the vehicle in which they were driving, so I don't know it's, it's a shame that it didn't find a wider mainstream audience or an older audience, you know, maybe but also the charm of it might have been lost i don't know
0: well one day somebody is going to pick mel and sue's late lunch for this which (laughs) i think that'll be a whole edition in its own right but speaking of out of the way tv slots come and go to your final choice now and it's something that i remember vividly or at least i remember the trailer for it vividly and i don't understand why i remember it vividly let's hear a bit of it anyway mrs roberts if you need some help losing all that weight keep watching because miss diana dawes is with us again to show how easy it is to diet with diana well, how are no. you, Nick? <laughs> well, not too bad, really. Good. What about you? That's I'm, more important. I'm fighting fit. Mm. Uh, no temptations this week. Good. Uh, no food and wine exhibitions. No uh, birthday dinners and mm. things like that. So you've been a good girl. I have been very good. Uh, but it's interesting.
1: Uh, yesterday, I went out for lunch with a friend.
0: Mm.
1: And when you're on this diet, you s- sort of stop. And you, you look in at yourself as though you're looking in at a mirror. Yeah. And I suddenly realised just how much I would have eaten if I had been acting normally.
0: Okay, that's unmistakably Diana Doors on TVAM in 1983, I think, with Doors Dozen. So, Anna, what is going on here? I think you're better qualified to tell us that than anyone else.
1: Okay, so Diana Doors had, as you say, 1983, a segment each Friday on TVAM. It was a dieting show. It was hilarious. It was lovely, actually. No, it was, it was lovely. But yeah, a little bit, a bit crazy, I guess, as a concept. But basically, she had her Doors Dozen, which was uh, 12 people that were dieting, along with her to lose weight you know within the weeks of the the segment and each week you'd have a different one of them come back and kind of talk about what they had done that week and maybe do a bit of a, a recipe or whatever and it was delightful and you're right I remember it really well And this is the thing I obviously I've, I've written about Diana Dawes I'm, I'm a big fan of her film work but I first saw her on this 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 was my first introduction to her as a personality as a, as a person and she's she's truly delightful on it she really is
0: I think it's interesting and I imagine you probably addressed this in your book my first memories of her are things like this where I don't I don't remember the segment but i remember there was a trailer shown constantly throughout the week on tv AM where for some reason she came out of a caravan and tipped some chips from a chip pan <laughs> <into the floor laughs> and said and it's goodbye to all of those but it was things like this like the yes. worm that turned yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah the yeah. just williams series the adamant video yeah. she was in she was somebody who you know when the other work wasn't forthcoming rolled their sleeves up and got on with what was on offer really enthusiastically i mean you can't look at her dancing in Prince Charming and think that's somebody on their uppers. She is enjoying that. She is loving that. But whereas people celebrate men like Kenneth Williams for doing similar, for taking other odd bits of work when they couldn't get anything more high profile, I think Diana Doors is a bit, not scorned for it, but is treated as though it's a sad end to a great career. And I'm not sure, it, I don't think she saw it that way.
1: Absolutely not. No, she she loved it. She, like you say, she embraced the opportunities that came along. She was going for a laugh. She really was. Well, she might even have been on Game for, she a probably laugh for was, all yeah. I know. And this is the thing, you know, in the early 80s, I remember her really well as being a larger than life, vivid, wonderful personality that used to appear on my screen. You know, she would, she'd be appearing on TV, I'm obviously on a regular basis at that time, but also she was on chat shows, she was on other things, and she was always, always seemed to be such delightful company and always enjoying herself, always really happy to be there and kind of coming out with the delightful anecdotes. You talk about Kenneth Williams, you know, everyone talks about him and his anecdotes. He's talking, Diana Dawes could absolutely match him you know in terms of kind of the the kind of things she'd bring into conversation on those shows she was absolute fun she was engaging she was witty she was an intelligent woman television was something she really enjoyed doing and obviously from doing the book and and, and reading more about her and find out more about her career she enjoyed television she liked the interaction with the audience that came from it particularly on you know kind of the the panel shows or the the chat shows and she thrived in that environment and towards the end of her career you know she she, she loved doing it you know, she, she loved having those interactions and doing those shows. And she was able to take the mickey out of herself. You know, she knew herself really well. As I say, she, she was a very intelligent woman and she, she knew how to make the best of those situations.
0: I think she's just misrepresented at every level, really. I mean, because the other thing people say, apart from, oh, she had this, you know, this dazzling career early on and then, oh, she was doing game shows by the end. The other thing is people go on and on and on about her personal life, which I think, as far as I can tell, was just a few years early in her success and maybe ill-advised recreational choices shall we say that were probably nothing compared to what people are regularly in the headlines for now but for a long time she was very happily married to Alan Lake who was a great actor as in things like Slade in Flame and he was absolutely broken when she died so now, yeah. why define her by a bit of getting carried away very early on when obviously she found stability later maybe that's what people should remember
1: absolutely yeah she she and, and Alan Lake were devoted to each other and they were married for a very long time you know he, he was her third husband a, you know I'm suggesting maybe people read my book to, yeah. to find out more about her <laughs> That was her kind of what life. I was pushing yeah. towards yeah. <laughs> um, So yeah the, you know there were some, some colourful moments uh, kind of maybe early on but you're right you know she had a, a lovely relationship with Alan Lake through the, the 70s and, and beyond the poignancy of the TVAM slot for me is that it was the last thing she did on TV sadly she, she passed away in um, 1984 when she was 52 and the whole point of the TVAM slot was she was trying to lose weight the hook it was that it was around was she was trying to lose 52 pounds, I think it was, by her 52nd birthday, which she managed to do. Some people may say that she cheated slightly by just wearing lighter jewellery on each show but, you know, <laughs> she kind of, she she, she she did it in good spirits. She loved working with the members of the public on it as well and kind of getting their stories. Um, I actually spoke to someone well, unfortunately I found this person just after I'd finished the book but it kind of reiterated what I thought anyway. I spoke to someone who'd worked with her on the TVAM segment as a young researcher or, you know, kind of a young person kind of working in TV and said that Diana does was absolutely delightful to work with and it just reiterated how I have perceived her through my writing about her and and finding out more about her she was incredibly glamorous you know she was a beautiful woman you know she looked amazing but she was incredibly down to earth as well and and lovely engaging and sweet working with the members of the public on that segment you can see it you know you can see she wasn't wasn't you know she was tangible you know she was kind of a person you could see you'd want to go down the pub with and have a laugh so she came across so well on that segment I think for me it, it summed up her as a person you know the the way she comes across on on that segment she did enjoy tv she did a a few forays into tv before this you know various kind of attempts at chat shows of her own and things like that but the one that i would have loved to have seen i've not actually seen an episode because i can't find i can't find it anywhere was something called pause for doors which was a pet chat show that she did (laughs) Quite early on, and honestly, I would I would kill to be able to see a clip from that show. It wasn't the pets; it was the, it was the pet owners. It was a pilot <laughs> where she um, had three guests with their pets, and they would talk through um their pets. <laughs> It's
0: probably still more interesting than the average edition of Parkinson. Yeah, think.
1: but uh, this is the thing. Everything she did, everything she did in TV, ha- was wonderfully named. pause doors is just the best name you could possibly want for that yeah. show. Her first autobiography was called Swinging Doors. So like, she was funny. She was a really funny, witty, sharp woman. And yeah, I, I think people either forget that or didn't don't realise. You know, she's she's more than just a, a 1950s film star. She she was a a, a great Personality. She showed that through her career, and her career was long and fun and interesting. It wasn't just a few films in the fifties.
0: Well, yes, because she still did interesting things. Like she was in Deep End, that weird yeah, British oh, German that horror film, yeah. film. The Pie Piper, with mentioning him again, mm. Donovan, the really creepy seventies yeah. version. She always did all these interesting things as well. It's just she went on TV AM at the same, well, not exactly at the same time as then, but yeah, yeah,
1: no, her film career in the seventies is fascinating, and she did that alongside a TV career, a, a healthy TV career as well, you know, she was in an episode of Mind, uh, she was huge guest star in, in things, she had a, a full and an interesting screen career and I think you know, again obviously I cover it in the book but you know, she kind of, I think she enjoyed being able to drop that thing of you know, only being seen as a, a kind of glamorous young film star you know, once she was able to embrace character roles and kind of given that those opportunities, she absolutely ran with them and you know, her, her 70s film career is really fascinating actually and as I say, runs alongside an interesting TV career you know she she utilized every every opportunity and did it with relish really
0: well she did because you know people might like to bang on about her early film roles, but what is it that people remember it is things like this about her it's yeah. the worm that turned which i can confirm Absolutely. a young midi driver was frightened by her in that so <laughs> she really filled all these roles so brilliantly and we should embrace these kind of things about people's careers it shouldn't just be stripped down to what the critics like or dislike because everybody has a career that encompassed all kinds of things and I think she's one of the best examples of it absolutely
1: yeah no she, she's absolutely smashing yeah just before
0: we go Anna what title have you given to your book
1: okay so the book is is called the real Diana Dawes
0: oh it's not a pun then
1: no no unfortunately not I would have loved to have continued her tradition of, of punning on her own name but no it, it's the real Diana Dawes and um and it does where it says on the tin really it is about her you know as a person and her, her full and, and, and interest in green and stage career
0: Anna it's been brilliant thank you Thank you very much. The Larks Ascending, a complete guide to comedy on BBC Radio 3, featuring Chris Morris, Peter Cook, Sue Townsend, Rowan Atkinson, Peter Tinniswood, NF Simpson, Armando Yucci, the National Theatre of Brent, Ivor Cutler, Leonard Brossetter, John Sessions, Kenneth Williams, Joe Orton, Dave Bremwick, Andrew Marshall. BBC Radio the workshop, the King Singers, the Beatles, are more. More details: timworthington.org. I was in uh, Castle Grayskull uh, the other day. I was talking to whatever he man's cat is called. What's that cat called? Too young, isn't he? Battle cat. That's when he's changed. Uh, Cringer, cringer, that's why I was was thinking of swiping no swiping, that's what, because I've got confused with Dora the Explorer.